0: We're obviously continuing on in Leviticus. You have your prayer sheets. We'll do what we did last week, and that's dive into them at the end. That way, if I go on a little too long, we have a chance to get in for prayer. But obviously, Leviticus uh, continuing on, and and we're actually entering into the narrative portion uh, tonight. I'm going to show you again the outline, and I just want you to see... This helps us kind of get a framework. So the Bible Project puts this out. I actually disagree with them on the 17. I think that should move over here, but we'll do that. I'm not going to redraw it because I don't have that skill set. But one through seven, we've done all of our sacrifices. We're moving into eight through 10. This is about the priest. This is the narrative portion of Leviticus. So we're diving in here. So far, we've run through the offerings. And if, if you remember, we've seen the command and instructions from the eyes of the people. That's chapters 1 through 6a. You see God talking to the people about offerings and how they would uh, give their offerings. And then from the rest of 6 all the way through 7, you get to see it from the perspective of the priest. And through these chapters, we've seen painted for us uh, the full picture of our atonement. As I mentioned, and I'll probably quote throughout Leviticus, that one author that says, if you're going to truly understand what Christ did for you, you need to know Leviticus. You have to understand what the sacrifices pointed to, and what they were depicting. And I think we've kind of gotten a broader view of what these offerings were. We've seen the cleansing offering for purification, trespass, which have been reparations or payment. And when we go to the New Testament, as you actually wander through Isaiah, you're going to see them talking about cleansing, white as snow. You're going to see conversation about payment. And Christ fulfills that all. But obviously, as we look in Leviticus, we understand Um, the weight of what Christ did. And then as you wander and keep going through, you get this idea of his call to holiness, how serious God was about being in his presence and that we are not to take that flippantly. And last week, we really dove into that. That probably one of the main points we hit on is as a culture today, we tend to be very casual about God. We tend to demean or drag God down to our level And an Israelite at this time, worshiping the Lord, would not have struggled with that that kind of idea that that you could bring God down to human level. Instead, they would have understood his holiness and his call for us to be holy. So be holy for I am holy. That's Leviticus. That's who they're quoting in the New Testament. And so we got to walk through that. Now, we turn the corner and as I said, I wanted you to see it on the graph kind of moving down to this portion that is called the historical portion of Leviticus. It's the narrative component showing now the official institution of the priesthood. And if you think about all these sacrifices that need priests and the instruction that's surrounding it, it makes sense that now as the Holy Spirit is working in Moses saying, hey, we need to talk about how the priests are now instituted to be priests, And it makes sense after you build the tabernacle and after the construction of the articles of worship and the end of Exodus, that we're going to come now to this priestly institution. By the way, if you read uh, Exodus 29 and Leviticus 8, you're going to see it sounds very similar because you see the narrative moving. Uh, But what's really fascinating, and I put interesting to remember something, is what happened after Exodus 29. After... Exodus talks about what the priests would be doing and how they would be instituted. You get to Exodus 32 and you have the golden calf and Israel's massive idolatry. And who's right in the middle of that idolatry? Aaron. He's He's not the one that perpetuates it. He's not the instigator, but he definitely kept the fire burning, right? oh, that's what you want. We'll see what I can carve up. Apparently he was good at making molten images. And so there he dove into it. And I want you to think a little bit about what he made. What did he make? A golden what? Calf. That's a, it's a baby cow. Now, if you notice through the offerings, you don't have a calf, a bull calf offered as an offering. But what's interesting, and, and we'll, we'll look at this, is when Aaron goes to make his first sacrifice as a priest, he is called to offer a calf. Never again, never before. It's not part of the list. And he is asked to offer that. But when you think about this, we have separation, right? We hit Exodus and we're like, wow, hundreds of years later, it feels like we're in Leviticus. I want you to realize that God's about to make Aaron high priest. And in a very short period of time from when he built a golden calf and said to Israel, here is the Lord that got you out of Egypt. Now he does still try to connect it to God, but he's made a molten image, breaking the rules they've just committed to. And he made that calf. So the plans for erecting the tabernacle and installing Aaron as high priest were interrupted by the production of an idol, of the golden calf. But, and this is what I want you to see in eight and 10, that it's really easy to miss. You got to see God's grace and mercy because he still calls Aaron to serve in the capacity that he was called to serve before he committed this sin. If you really think about that, that's a career-ending move in most instances. Yet God in his grace and mercy still permits Aaron, and I put privileges Aaron to be the high priest, called to that responsibility. And we watch in chapters 8 and 9 as that unfolds. Now this all takes place through God's mediator, uh, his chosen prophet Moses. And you're going to notice that in eight and nine, God commands Moses. And what you're going to watch is Moses functioning as the priest. So Aaron and his sons are going to come in and they're going to be the lay people in this instance. And Moses is going to be the one who makes the offerings. And Moses is going to be one that handles the blood. Aaron and his sons are going to be the one that killed the offering. Moses will be the one that burns the fat. Moses will be the one that sprinkles the altar on the horns. He's going to be the one that puts the blood on their ear, on their thumb, and on their big toe. He is the functional priest. Even on the peace offering that goes to the priest, the breast and the thigh, Moses is going to keep the breast and he's actually going to give to God the thigh. And most commentators look at this and realize that you see this when I say emphasis on Moses, God saying this is my chosen leader and I'm working through him to institute this priesthood that will then do the sacrifices moving forward, it all takes place through Moses and what you're going to find constantly repeated is this, as the Lord commanded him. And throughout the whole thing Moses is going to say this is what the Lord said, we do what God commanded and you're going to get this idea and I hope this gets ingrained in. One, we're sinful. Sin is something that corrupts us constantly, and Aaron is going to offer an umpteen amount of sacrifices through seven days as he becomes ordained as a priest, and his first act as a priest is to make a sin offering. God is making it very clear to Aaron that you're not above everyone else, that you are not suddenly a demigod. You are still man, and you're still sinful, and you must offer sacrifices. If you look at all the offerings that take place in this week of time, it is telling Aaron and his sons, and it's reminding the whole nation of Israel we are sinful and we need redemption we need atonement now the whole process culminates so i'm going to read the last verses of chapter 9 and we'll reread them again but this whole process culminates at this as the lord commanded him it goes on it goes the glory of the lord appeared unto all the people this at the end god's glory is there it's 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 visual And then it goes, and there came a fire out from before the Lord and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat. In other words, what was already being offered and burnt, God's fire came and just consumed it all, which when all the people saw, they shouted and fell on their faces. And I always say this, if you're going to underline something, you want to underline both of those. They shouted in joy. We'll talk about that. And they fell on their faces, and it dealt with worship. And so when God's presence was revealed to the people, they screamed with joy, praise, and they fell down, which was a complete commitment to worshiping the true God. And one of the things that we walk away with as believers, and we should, is to understand the complete investment into worship. And then, and this doesn't mean that we're all falling on our faces. So don't, we, we get, when I say too literal, and next thing you know, on Sunday, you guys are all laying on the ground, and i am be like, what's wrong? Something, something happened. Did someone eat something bad at the, at the kitchen? It is this commitment of everything you are to worship. And I want you to think briefly before I dive in, how committed are you when you come to worship? How focused is your mind? I make jokes all the time about falling asleep. And, you know, I understand it happens to the best of you and some of the worst. No, just kidding. <laughs> uh, just joking. I would never say that. Uh, he doesn't fall asleep. I'm picking on Mr. Malampi. He's able to sleep with his eyes open. I don't even know. So it's just there. But all the joking aside, and I understand we're tired and sometimes that happens, but here's the reality. When we come to worship, are we serious about worship? Are we committed to come to worship or are we committed to connecting with some friends or, and look, it's great to connect with friends. Are we committed to what we'll feel afterwards? Oh, I hope to feel good. I hope to feel pumped up. I hope to feel like it was a fun time. I hope to have seen smoke, mirrors, fog, you name it. That's not to villainize any of the things I just mentioned, because they're neutral in that sense. It's the use of them that would be wrong. But do you come to worship? The Israelites came to worship with everything they had. They screamed with joy and praise. And they fell on their face, which depicts a complete commitment to worship. Those are some of the takeaways we'll close with tonight. But before we get all the way there, uh, we're going to need to walk through Aaron's ordination and first sacrifices as high priest. Uh, we're going to begin with um, am I on the right one? Yeah. ordination. I'm going to do the first reading. If you've grabbed one of the readings that I don't think you most, maybe a few up there. So right now, Eric, I can see you want to read. Um, there's some readings up front here. I want you you pass some of them out? Every week, I'll put the readings right up front there. If you just want to grab one, if no one does the reading, then I have to read it all out loud. And so it's a chance you'll go to the microphone and turn it on when it's time. I'm going to kick off the reading with chapter 8. Here is the ordination of Aaron and sons. I kind of zero in on Aaron because he is the emphasis the whole time. So looking at chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him and the garments and the anointing oil and a bullock for the sin offering and two rams and a basket of unleavened bread. By the way, the peace offering is going to be a confessional offering, so it requires Bread with it, and gather thou all the congregation together unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the assembly was gathered together unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Moses said unto the congregation, This is the thing which the Lord commanded to be done. I'm going to remind you again when you see the word congregation, typically it is referring to not all the people, but the elders. So not tribal leaders, but to that headship over the tribes. And the reason I put the drawing back up is we're in the court of tabernacle. And I want you to envision that we're going to be doing most of the offering is going to be on the altar. It is not till the end that Moses and Aaron go into the tent of meetings. Actually, when they do the purification, Moses does not go in and sprinkle blood in there. And I'll explain why when we get to it. The people, the elders are here. They're around this area. They're witnessing What is taking place. And I just want you to see if they're in this area, you're not going to have two million people there. I'm not saying that the people aren't gathered out here, but the congregation that's close are the elders that would need to witness what is taking place. So God speaks to Moses, Aaron and sons, along with the garments and sacrifices, are brought to the door of the tabernacle, right to the front there. Uh, where the lava is, which they're going to be washed first. The congregation, meaning the elders and rulers, are brought to the door as well. Uh, These leaders were called upon to witness momentous occasions. They're confirming here for the nation of Israel. They're like you would have someone sign a document, witnesses, right? If you're going to sign to something, you have to have a witness sign that you actually did this, that confirms this. They are the witnesses. So they're going to stand in front of the congregation. Now, two million people, how far stretched out are they? And can they see in to what's going on? So, what do they need? If you're a Simeonite, what do you need? You need your leader to witness this, and you need your leader to come back and say, This took place. This is what happened. God has instituted here their opportunity. And sometimes we forget their purpose is not just so they have a place of position or honor, but it was very practical that the Simeonite and the Reubenite and whoever wasn't right at the door, because let's be honest, how many people are actually seeing in? Very few, if any, because I'm guessing they wrapped around. And so they need to know what took place. They needed that firsthand account. This is a testimony to what God's truth is. And so that's why they're there. People were most likely gathered outside there is functioning going on during that week. They didn't just stop for a week and just stare at the, the court of the tabernacle, but they have access around it because when we know at the close that we're going to see God work and the people are going to now shout uh, and, and move forward. Now, if whoever has reading number two, if they don't mind doing that, if someone grabbed reading number two, there we go. We'll continue on. If you have reading three, you're going to want to be ready fairly, um, fairly quickly. I'm just going to keep moving through this as we go. So.
1: And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water, and he put the coat on him and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe, and put the ephod on him and tied the the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breastpiece on him, and in the breastpiece he put the urim and the thummon, and he set the turban on his head. And on the turban in front, he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils and the basin and its stand to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons and clothed them with coats and tied sashes around their waists and bound caps on them as the Lord commanded Moses.
0: What you're going to find here is we're going to go through a process. First, Moses cleans Aaron and his sons. And again, don't miss any of the nuance that's there. There is a need for purity. It is, as one writer noted, outward action representing the desire for inner spiritual cleansing. The Israelite is going to be watching the the congregation. The rulers are watching, and Moses is cleaning Aaron. It's it's bringing this idea that purity matters. It's not a casual thing. It's not the bonus. It's not what the best would achieve to. It is what God requires. And so he begins by cleaning him. I put here, notice the visual reminder of cleansing and purity, inescapable reminders. Yet how easy do we distance ourselves from this today? We make excuses for the taint of the world. We can't help it. It's around us. That's who we are. That's how we grew up. That's the work I'm forced into. And the thing is, is when you walk into this ceremony, because that's what it is, as God is giving the details of what he wants Moses to do to institute his priesthood, because don't, don't be like, oh, well, Aaron, he was born into this. No, God called Aaron to do this. He specifically chose Aaron and his sons to do this. And Leviticus shows that purity bears thought and weight in our mind. That we aren't to brush aside that conviction. We're not to brush aside the idea of holiness or being clean, but instead to take it serious. God is so serious about it that he has people watching Moses, washing them symbolically with water from the lava that would be there, cleansing them. And then you notice that Aaron is dressed specifically. And if you read through it, there's a, a lot of different words for all the different things I'm going to kind of work through. Uh, I was looking for a picture of it, but again, it'd be someone's rendering of it. And I got out of, I lost time to find it. So I'm going to kind of work through it. First, I want you to realize something. Why do you put a uniform on? Well, it shows authority. That's right. But what's the authority usually vested in? Is it in the individual or the office they represent? The office. And see, we sometimes, and I know the military guys here are all going to know what it means, right? If you see, if you're a sergeant and you see someone's lieutenant, you have to, you salute. Doesn't matter how young they are. Doesn't matter how immature they might be. If you're a sergeant and they're a lieutenant, you are. I'm not going to even pretend to know how to salute, all right? I'm Dutch. We don't know what we're doing. Yeah. It's all over the place. We're a neutral nation. We never fight. Um, going, but this. think about why there's this dress. And first and foremost, you see an emphasis on the office of high priest, not an elevation of Aaron, the high priest. Immediately, it's not Aaron saying, you know what? I want to I wanna wear my Nike pumps on, on this because that's what I want to do. Or I'm definitely into brown loafers, so that's what I'm going to wear. It is a, a uniform with purpose, but it also does this. It it functions to show the office and it diminishes the attention on the individual personality that's wearing it. And so think of that. Aaron had a uniform to emphasize his role before God, not to emphasize Aaron. Again, as you walk through life, as we are the church and we're his children in the body of Christ, we are to be Elevating him and not ourselves. And again, you see this principle it carries through. Linen undergarments, it started off with what was against the priest's skin. And that fine linen represented personal righteousness under a tunic, which was covered by the robe of the ephod. So you have the ephod, which had the robe of the ephod. It was blue linen. I think it was a light blue typically there, Um, and it had pomegranates on the bottom, which signified fruitfulness, and bells. Why bells? Well, the high priest would walk into what? Holy of holies, and if you hear the bells, he's alive. When the bells stop ringing and he's not out, you drag him out because you can't go in and get him. But the bells were what? They're ringing to tell you what? He's alive, which means he must be accepted to come in. So the bells are a testimony to him at that moment. They testified the a fact that when Aaron goes in and they hear the bells moving as he does what he's going to do, what God's called him to do, that God's accepted him. He's done what he's supposed to do from a sin offering to purification. So the bells function not just as a warning like, oh, I hope the bells are ringing. It is a testimony to Aaron's character in that moment that he was an accepted servant of God, that he has followed through with God's commands, because that's what Moses is emphasizing. This is what the Lord commanded. This is what the Lord commanded. Why do they repeat that? Why do you repeat in Scripture? It's emphasis, right? It's important. we got to get this. Moses says over and over and over and over again, as the Lord commanded, as the Lord said, as the Lord commanded. In other words, God is serious about you doing things the way he has told you. Now you move on, a sash would gird that robe. On top of that was added the actual ephod. A shorter outer garment looks like a jacket. Um, I went through some of the, how it was buckled. I think there's a special buckling on the shoulders. If you go to Exodus, you read about two onyx stones with the names of Israel carved on it. Uh, one person notes in regard to that, Aaron bore those tribal names as a memorial as he represented Israel before the Lord. Remember the one picture? I was going to go point to it, but it's definitely gone. On the Bible project, it shows the priests represent Israel to God, and they represent God to Israel. And so Aaron, even in his his uniform, he's walking in representing his people. There was a breastplate, which also had 12 precious stones, connected to the shoulder pieces of the ephod, and it had some holding the... Urim and Thumen, and whoever you pronounce it, it's great to me. I say, you go with it. Those are actually just Hebrew words. I think it's for light and perfection. Um, it's somewhat of an un, unexplained component in Scripture. It was done to discern God's will. And so you'll read to the Old Testament. By the time you get uh, to the post-exilic period, you don't read about it uh, anymore. But through the history of Israel, this was used to decide God's will. I doubt they had to use it much when Moses was alive. But you're going to notice that Moses is going to pass off the scene at some point. How do they discern the will of God? And God gave them a way where a king could wonder and then the high priest could give an answer to a question. What was God's will? He gave a way to discern what he wanted. We're not to go out and build those and pretend that that's God's answer, but instead tells us that God was communicating his will to the nation, they had a way to know what God wanted done. How do we know what God wants done today? What do we have that they did not have? His word. So that's, we have, we don't need something like that. They had none of this. None, nothing was written down. And so this is how they would know God's will. But the, the principles there, it's not confusing what God wants. It's in his word. Sometimes the details, and, and, and really it's not details so much as patience is hard for us. I want the answer now, God, for how this is going to turn out. We'll know what needs to be done, but we sometimes want to get it done before God's going to reveal exactly how that's going to play out, how it's going to work, how we can apply his word. I have this oftentimes uh, with the mission work. I'm in Nicar- you know, going to Nicaragua in November, uh, you're doing some work, and, and sometimes things come up that I call them bumps in the road. And I like to smooth the bumps out immediately. So there's a bump and I want to take care of it. But I've learned that if I'm patient and walk through this and and get on God's timeline, that the truth of the matter is revealed and then the right decision is not difficult. But when I get on my time frame of smoothing the bump immediately, I'm making a lot of guesses. And I, you know, and I know all, we all do this, but I'm just going to confess my own, right? Have you ever prayed and really what you're doing is recounting to God what you're planning on doing and you just hope you feel good at the end of the prayer about what you've decided you're going to do and you just want to say that you prayed to God about what you want to do? And I'm judging by everyone's face. You've done that before and you realize it's a highly manipulative prayer. That's not seeking God's guidance. That's telling God what you're going to do and saying, please rubber stamp my plans, even just in my own heart. And then when you go to him in prayer and you realize that you need to be patient, the answer is patience. I'm not the most patient person, but it's watching how God works. Well, that, we have his word. We know his will. The nation of Israel would know his will. They knew what God wanted. And God made that clear to the Israelites. You go on from there, the turban or mitre that is completed on the head. It had a gold plate and the gold plate actually said, holy to the Lord. You see that in Exodus. So as he walked in, holy to the Lord, it's a constant reminder of what he's wearing, of him being set apart to the Lord, pure, cleansed, holy. Aaron then was anointed, but first Moses anointed the tabernacle and all within. They were dedicated to God's service, followed then by Aaron, and later his sons, all dedicated to God's service. The sons are dedicated after the offerings. Aaron is dedicated before with the oil poured over him. I put here, do we live as though we've been dedicated to God's service? Mithra, if we believe in the priesthood of the believer, a New Testament gift, right? What God has done with the church as we function in the church, then we are to be dedicated to his service. Not just the guy that stands up and preaches on Sunday, or as I say, gets paid by the church or gets gets to make that their living. No, every single believer is dedicated to God's service. And I put as a question, could we even be accused of that? Could someone accuse you of being dedicated to God's service? Or would they say, oh, okay, you're a Christian, you're religious, that's your tradition, you go to church, I get it. And sometimes people look at that and say, oh, I can't believe you go to church every week. But at some point as a believer, that's not what God's asking for. He's asking for you to be dedicated completely with all of your life and all of your talents to him. Well, these Israelites would have been staring at Aaron and he is being dedicated completely to God's service. Now, what follows are the offerings of purification, uh, burnt and peace. And so reading number three, if someone can... Grab that and jump up and read. It's going to be verses 14 through 21. Chapter 8, 14 uh, through 21.
2: Then he brought the bowl of the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering, and he killed it. And Moses took the blood, and with his finger put it on the horns of the altar, around it and purified the altar, and poured out the blood at the base of the altar, and consecrated it to make atonement for it. And he took all the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver, and the two kidneys with their fat, and Moses burned them on the altar. But the bull and its skin and its flesh and its dung he burned up with the fire outside the camp, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he presented the ram of the burnt offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it, and Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. He cut the ram into pieces, and Moses burned the head and the pieces and the fat. He washed the entrails and the legs with water, And Moses burned the whole ram on the altar. It was a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering for the Lord, as the Lord commanded
0: Moses. And again, keep hearing as the Lord commanded Moses. When you see the word he, it's typically referring to Aaron. That's why it says Moses does this. So he killed it. Aaron killed it. He cleaned it. Aaron cleaned it. Just like the priests would do. The lay person is going to kill their offering. They're going to identify with their offering. They're going to be the ones that have to clean the entrails. They're going to be the ones that have to get the dung away, the, the, the impurity away. It's going to be the priest who burns the fat. It's going to be the priest who offers it on the offering. So there's Moses functioning uh, in that role. I put here, first, what do you find is the purification offering, the sin offering. God's sanctuary must be cleansed of sin's pollution, specifically the sin that the priest would introduce themselves. Moses is purifying the altar and the offering. You see Aaron and his sons as lay people in this moment. They're doing the job that the Israelite would ultimately do. And Moses is doing the part that they would engage in as priests. Second, you see the burnt offering, and it follows exactly what Leviticus 1 says. Moses makes the sacrifices as the acting priest, as God's representative, and Aaron and sons acknowledge need. All of those Israelites would do that, acknowledging the need acknowledge that they are dedicated to God and needing His atonement. The burnt offering is part of the atonement offering, and it is something that happens day and night, every day, every night. The burnt offering is offered. Now, if someone has reading number four, uh, we move on and look at the peace offering. I don't know if they'll read that, that's mm-hmm. verses in your Bible eight twenty-two through thirty.
3: Then he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it. And Moses took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. Then he presented Aaron's sons, and Moses put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ears and on the thumbs and of the right hands and on the big toes of their right feet. Then Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. Then he took the fat and the fat of the tail and all the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat and the right thigh and out of the basket of unleavened bread that was before the Lord. He took one of the unleavened loaf and one loaf of bread with oil and one wafer and he placed them on the pieces of fat and on the right thigh and they put all these things in the hands of Aaron. And in the hands of his sons, and waved them as a wave offering before the Lord. Then Moses took them from their hands and burned them on the altar with the burnt offering. There was, this was the ordination offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. And Moses took the breast and offered it for a wave offering before the Lord. It was Moses' portion of the ram of ordination, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took some of the anointing oil and of the blood that was on the, alternator, al- on the altar, and sprinkled on Aaron and his garments, and also on his sons and on his sons' garments. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments and his sons and his sons' garments with him.
0: That oil on the sons and again on Aaron, but before just... On Aaron. This is, uh, I put an interesting peace offering. Again, Moses performs it. He gets the priestly share, yet the Lord ends up receiving the right thigh. Moses gets the breast. So he's setting a precedent, but you see in that precedent, a connection uh, with God. And, and I put here, just as kind of a side note, as we walk through Leviticus, we see the priest's work and how the nation is going to function and how they're going to offer. Moses is still given that elevated role. He still set aside. He still emphasizes God showing who his servant is and who his prophet is. Now, the process diverges from the norm in other places as well. So a normal peace offering doesn't involve blood being put on someone's right ear, right thumb, right toe. That is unique to this ordination or this consecration. Uh, it was a confessional peace offering. And if you remember, a confessional peace offering came with the breads, right? They had to add to it. If you brought a peace offering for different reasons, let's say a vow, or something else, you would not offer the bread. But if it was a confessional, and when we hear the word confessional, we immediately go to a booth and a priest sitting there, and you're making confession of your sins. But a confessional is more a confession of a truth. And so Aaron would be making a confession here. He was confessing God's mercy and grace in choosing him as high priest and a prayer for blessing. So he was making a statement about God's character. That's why they say it's a confessional. And you know it's confessional because it comes with the bread that's tied to it. And so it points to what it was doing. It was an offering of sanctification, of setting apart. Uh, Each of these locations, your ear, your thumb, and your foot, all are representing a whole. So they're they're pointing to something. And I'm just quoting from... um, Other commentators here, as they lay it out, the the priest, and I just worked it to make sound easy to remember, the priest would listen to God's word. They listen to God. That's the ear you're going to give. Your guidance will come from God. Um, It goes on from there. The hands were to be done. What do you do with your hands? You do work. So your hands are to do God's work. And then feet represent movement, do they not? To walk in God's way. So listen to God's word do God's work, walk in God's way. And so this is very symbolic. And I I put here, I think the application to today doesn't require too much connection. I think I can make that same application, right? We are to listen to God's word, we're to do God's work, and we're to walk in God's way. What Aaron was depicting as Moses did this and they witnessed it was a very visual way of saying They hear only God, they do God's work, and they walk in God's way. They're set apart to that. We are also set apart to that. The application's an easy one. Uh, It all closes with some further instructions. Whoever has reading number five, if you want to pop up and you're going to finish chapter eight for us, 31 through 36.
4: And Moses said to Aaron and his sons, boil the flesh at the entrance of the tent of meeting And there eat it, and the bread that is in the basket of ordination offerings, as I commanded, saying, Aaron and his sons shall eat it. And what remains of the flesh and the bread you shall burn up with fire. And you shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your ordination are complete for it will take seven days to ordain you. As has been done today, the Lord has commanded to, uh, to be done to make atonement for you. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged so that you do not die, for so I have been commanded. And Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses.
0: How many times do you hear the word commanded? And as Moses says, now you do all the things, and you did all the things that God commanded me to do, that I told you to do, and you did everything that God commanded you to do, like he told me to do. And one of the things we need to understand as you walk through 8 and 9, that is repeated more times than we could probably count up. I have one commentator listed them all, and it's like almost a whole line of references where it's reminding you that God gave a command and Moses gave the command directly and that they followed the command through. And you're going to see some sense of warning there. Aaron and sons, though they're in the role of a lay person in this moment, still eat at the door of the tabernacle like a priest would do. So you see some blending in there. Uh, It goes on for six more days. is a seven-day consecration. And I didn't write this in my notes, but it popped in my head when Eric was reading. And that's the beauty of having other people read. And I hope we can enjoy other people reading scripture and listening to it. Uh, is I remember what was written. Someone says, it takes a long time to get consecrated or purified, but it takes a really short period of time to be disqualified seven days, and they could have blown it with just one act. And it's a good reminder of the seriousness and the weight behind their being set apart for this uh, in there. And by the way, this process, these sacrifices are repeated every day. So the same process happens the next day and the next day and the next day. And notice it is, again, a confessional peace offering. So if you don't eat it that day, you burn the rest, which we will remember from uh, the last chapters, when it's saying certain offerings could go two days, you could eat it. Certain offerings could go one day. The idea is that they're doing this over and over and over again. It kind of ingrains it in their thinking. Tucked within this is a warning. Keep the charge of the Lord that you die not. How about that for a do what God says or you die. By the way, it's a warning that ends up being unheeded by two of Aaron's sons. And I want you to realize These two guys sat through this whole process and heard God commanded, God commanded, do it like I command it, do it like I say, do it like I say, do it like I say. And by chapter 10, his two oldest sons decide to do something outside the boundaries of what God had said. And the punishment that comes seems harsh, but it's again a reminder of something. Grasp the seriousness of God's work on purpose. You do. Things God's way. We listen to what God has to say. You don't tweak God's plan. And God makes that very clear to the Israelites. I put as an action step the whole ordination process points to Aaron's need and to humanity's need. How many animals do they kill every day? Purification, burnt offering, confessional offering. We're going to eat some of it, we're going to burn the rest. The next day, we're going to repeat this thing. We're going to repeat this thing, a purification offering. What did he do wrong in between that one and the next one, right? And it's a reminder of humanity's sin and that we need a cleansing and we need a payment for sin. The whole nation reminded of the deep-rooted nature of their sin. These were not sacrifices being offered for anyone but Aaron and his sons. This is the priest and God is ingraining in them the deep-seated problem of sin and the deep-seated need for a savior. Aaron and son specifically cannot respond in arrogance now. They can't say, well, look at us, put put on a pedestal. God's made sure they know they're not on a pedestal. You have seven days of sacrifices for your sin. We're purifying this place because of you. We have to put blood on that altar because you're going to contaminate it. That's all on Aaron and his sons. It's reminding them they don't get arrogant. Instead, they recognize God's grace and mercy in getting to serve God because God made a way and gave them a purpose. I put here, is that how we see God's call in our lives? How many times do we do something in ministry and that's what we put as the reason we don't do anything else or we do whatever we want or not get involved in another thing? We we put the service there and say, I did this, that's, that's it. I notched my belt. I put my mark on the world of Christianity. I'm good to go. And if you want a New Testament illustration of why that doesn't work, take the Apostle Paul and you realize that you don't notch your belt and are done because there's a guy that was whipped a million times, it seems like, and shipwrecked and through all the troubles he went through. Or take a Peter or take a John. All those guys show you they understood the idea that you don't get to elevate yourself and put yourself on a pedestal, that you glorify only God or glorify only your Savior. So the days of the ordination are completed. And the narrative now turns, day eight, to take a look at Aaron's first sacrifices. And I'll read the first part of chapter nine. Came to pass on the eighth day that Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. That's that congregation coming together. And he said unto Aaron, take thee a young calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering without blemish, and offer them before the Lord, and unto the children of Israel thou shalt speak, saying, "Take ye a kid of the goats for a sin offering, and a calf and a lamb both of the first year without blemish for a burnt offering, also a bullock and a ram for peace offerings to sacrifice before the Lord, and a meat offering mingled, which it means a cereal offering mingled with oil for today the Lord will appear unto you there's a promise from God. And they brought that which Moses commanded before the tabernacle of the congregation. And all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord commanded that ye should do, and the glory of the Lord shall appear unto you. And he's telling them again, God has said to do this. We're going to do what God said. And this is what God said to do. And Moses said unto Aaron, Go unto the altar and offer thy sin offering and thy burnt offering and make an atonement for thyself and for the people. And offer the offering of the people and make an atonement for them as the Lord commanded. And I want to ask you a question. Seven days of purification offering and atonement offering, and Aaron's first job is to offer a sin offering for whom? Him. In front of the people. And then go ahead and do the role of the priest. Um, Aaron's been ordained, he's ready to offer sacrifices for himself. And I put here, don't miss the irony of his first sacrifice. It's not used anywhere else. Really, again, a calf that he had made, a duplicate. And I put here, what did Aaron make for the nation to worship? A golden calf. And through the ages, if you read through the commentaries, uh, Jewish commentaries, every one of them notes this, the irony that Aaron is bringing a calf to be offered. A A live item of what he replicated in gold And Aaron is reminded when he does this, is this God being mean? Is this God being a bully and twisting it? No, Aaron is reminded who is the gracious God. It's God. He's the gracious one. Who has extended mercy? God has. And who has given him his privilege? God has. Aaron with this offering is kept grounded. And I want you to notice this. He's not allowed to get self-righteous when you're offering this calf, and if all the Jewish commentators through history pick up on the irony, I'm guessing that the people who just try to worship a golden calf a month or so ago pick up on the implication of the high priest bringing a calf that is now going to be offered for sin. They're not going to miss God's point, and God's not Crushing with his thumb, God is mercifully reminding them of how sinful they are and their need, and that their high priest has a need as well. It's a gift, actually, that we all continually need to be reminded that we need a savior, because it's easy in the world around us. And by the way, whoever has number seven, reading number seven, you can pop up here and read it. Um, but I just want to keep a note in the in the world we live in. The, the more wicked the world becomes, the more self-righteous or easier it is to become self-righteous, right? Wow, look at that wicked world. They, they need this. They need a change. We are, we're further and further from the world. I hope so. In the sense of distance. But that doesn't mean you sit there and say you're Jesus. I mean, you're, you're, you're growing to that. I just want to make sure Justin is standing up there just waiting for me to go. So go ahead and read uh, reading number seven.
5: So Aaron drew near to the altar and killed the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. And the sons of Aaron presented the blood to him, and he dipped his finger in the blood and put it on the horns of the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar. But the fat and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver and the sin offering he burned on the altar, as the Lord commanded Moses, the flesh and the skin he burned up with fire outside the camp. Then he killed the burnt offering, and Aaron's sons handed him the blood, and he threw it against the sides of the altar. And they hand, handed the burnt offering to him, piece by piece, and, the head, and he burned, washed the entrails and the legs and burned them with the burnt offering on the altar. Then he presented the people's offering and took the goat of the sin offering. sin offering, like the first one. And he presented the burnt offering and offered it according. Presented the grain offering took a handful of it, and burned it on the altar, besides the burnt offering of the morning. Then he killed the ox and the ram, the sacrifice of peace offerings for the people. And Aaron's sons handed him the blood, and he threw it against the sides of the altar. But the fat, of, but the fat pieces of the ox and of the ram, the fat tail, and that which covers the entrails and the kidneys, put the, the fat pieces on the breasts. And he burned the fat pieces on the altar. The, and the right thigh.
0: Waves. I'll run out of time as I typically do. But um, 8 through 21, notice that the blood is placed on the altar. Uh, when you're making a sin, remember when the, the priest is making a purification offering, they would bring blood into the sanctuary. They would put it on the incense altar. They would sprinkle it on the veil. They would work their way back and they, they would put blood on the, the burnt offering, the altar outside of the Ten of Meetings, he doesn't do this for this first one. Uh, and I'm, I'm not going to pretend that I, I figured this out on my own. Read somebody that said, uh, it's not on in the incense altar yet, likely because he, Aaron, has not entered there yet and thus has not contaminated it. It doesn't require purification yet. And so that was one of the implications because that's, that's a deviation from now on out, when he does the purification offering, he's going to go into the tabernacle and he's going to sprinkle it on the veil, wipe it on the incense altar, and he's going to work his way out. And he's going to do the altar on the outside. He just does the altar. And this is a purification one. Uh, notice the variety of animals in the sacrifices. He offers all kinds of offerings except the trespass or reparation offering and uses the majority of the acceptable animals. And it points to the fact that these sacrifices uh, as he dives in, we're for the general sinfulness of the nation. There's a shift, right? There's been this focus on Aaron's sinfulness and his son's sinfulness and their need for a savior. And as you see him move to the calf and he makes the offering and you don't miss the iron, you don't miss God's lesson that he's gracious and he's merciful, uh, he is the one giving to Aaron. And then as it moves into these other offerings, it's, it's pointing now to the nation. The nation is the one that he's offering for. And the, the variety then tells us the general symphonies of the nation. It's their dedication and a call for God's blessing on them. And what you're seeing is Aaron move from ordination to his first sacrifices. And in his first sacrifices, there's a transition that takes place from his offering into the offering for the people. And it's all... Laid out for him. Now, the last reading is reading number eight, whoever has uh, 22 through 24 of this last chapter. And again, I read these verses uh, at the beginning.
4: Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering. And the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces.
0: So here is Aaron blesses the people from the platform of the burnt offering. So he's not standing on it, but he's standing up. He's getting some elevation. I can share how that is helpful. Uh, We're down in the basement with 100 kids, and suddenly, Heather's like, you need to get taller. I'm like, well, taller than every kid here, but it doesn't matter. I can't reach a hundred deep without some elevation. So it makes sense that he's going to get some elevation. Remember at the beginning of nine, God told him he's going to speak to the people, most likely the blessing that's listed in numbers about God blessing them. He moves forward. And then what's interesting is Aaron and Moses enter the tabernacle and they're going to commune with God. And they're going with the conviction that God's glory would appear. God told them, you do what I tell you, follow through, and my glory will appear. And they go in to commune, and you see this side by side. Moses is always the person God speaks to. When he's alive, he speaks to him. But you see this where Aaron now walks in with Moses And we don't miss the implication up through this time. You're watching Moses speak and act as the priest. And now he and Aaron walk in together. And there's no doubt that God is going to appear. They believe this. They are not lacking faith. They come out and it says, And the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the people. Now, it is not just the elders witnessing something, but it becomes glaringly apparent that God is there. It's not a secret Two million people, what I'm saying, know that God's glory is there. Everybody. Up until this point, we're relying on our rulers and the, the elders to then communicate to their people further out what has taken place. And then God's glory has appeared. And it goes on. And there came a fire out from the Lord, from before the Lord, and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat, which when all the people saw, they shouted and fell on their faces. In other words, first God makes apparent that he's there. No one is confused by it. Secondly, God makes it perfectly clear that He sends the fire because He burns everything up. It consumes it. And, and if you read through the Old Testament, just read when God sends fire. It's a unique fire that doesn't leave any leftovers. All right. It's it's not a fire that we have. We always have ash left over. God consumes that literally means nothing's left. So it's, it's gone. Everything's finished and taken care of. But this is what's important. God blessed the following of his word and his requirements. He blessed them with his presence and a visible manifestation. What is the response? Joy. Joy at the realized presence of God, a complete response of worship. So that shout is again a loud cry. It is not, and I, I would liken it maybe even to the girls winning down there to candy. If you want to, I don't know if you heard the screaming that was there at some point. I was hoping to wake you guys up and it, and it worked. Uh, Dustin Hobbs said, he says, I think we reached a new decibel level. And if girls win, they're the best cheers. I hate it for the boys because it like, takes so much energy to get boys to cheer. They're loud, but they peter out really quickly. Girls can cheer. They can put some energy in and they can keep it going for a long time. This is the passion they had. And it wasn't a frantic screaming mindlessly. It was a joyful cry, but understand that it was loud. It wasn't this, oh, I rejoiced inside of myself. It was a rejoicing that was evident. And then they fell, which is an act of complete commitment. And so you have praise, vocal praise given to God. And then they fell, which depicts an act of complete commitment and I put here, the response was complete. God had all of them. And this is just a thought for us. And I'm going to read a quote from uh, Gordon Wenham about it. But just a thought, because uh, I, I would definitely fall into the arm crossed listening type of personality. So if you cross your arms, I just assume you're listening because that's how I listen, okay? I, I'm, I'm, it doesn't bother me. But think about when, when you worship are you vocal? And I'm talking about even we sing, we shout for joy, but we should be singing. You might say, Kenny, singing's not my thing. Well, make it your thing. Because you're going to sing and praise and shout in joy. And then when you're worshiping, be fully vested in worship. And I'm going to throw the jokes aside. I'll bring them all back. Don't worry, because I love jokes. That's one of my problems. But the reality is this. If while you're at church worshiping on Sunday, you are looking at your watch and thinking, what am I going to eat for lunch? I would recommend eating a little bit more for breakfast so you can make it to the end of worship before you need to get a sandwich or a steak or whatever. Trust you me, I want to eat too. I always want to (laughs) eat. That's a given. Um, But we are here to worship Our food is set aside. Actually, the whole idea of fasting is you be hungry while worshiping and it should help focus you in. And so the reality is this, let's not be distracted worshipers. Let's be zeroed in on worship. This is what Wenham notes. God's greatness and holiness cannot be ignored. He must be acknowledged by our whole being. Nothing less is adequate. Everyone is... We're very different. I know that people are different and different in their expressions. But here's the question I want to leave you with without making it a certain action you can perform because we all can become performers is this. Do you give your all to worship? Is everything vested in your worship? Because as Wenham notes, and I think he's completely accurate, biblical in this, nothing less is adequate. You cannot worship God part way. That's not worship. Worship is all or it's nothing. Action step I put, could the same be said of our worship, of our acknowledgement of the holy God, the only God, our Savior? Is that how we respond to God?